0: Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Antiwar News for Wednesday, September 7th, 2022. First story at the top of Antiwar.com today, more threats from Israel. Standing next to an F-35 fighter jet, Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid on Tuesday issued a threat to Iran, warning the Islamic Republic that it could soon feel Israel's long arm. In a video posted to Twitter, Lapid said it was too early to know if his pressure on the Biden administration to scrap negotiations with Iran to revive the nuclear deal has worked. He said, "Quote: It is still too early to know if we have indeed succeeded in stopping the nuclear agreement, but Israel is prepared for every threat and every scenario. If Iran continues to test us, it will discover Israel's long arm and capabilities." We will continue to act on all fronts against terrorism and against those who seek to harm us, end quote. He made these comments from an Israeli airbase. So the Israeli pressure on the U.S. does appear to be working as a revival of the JCPOA now seems unlikely since the U.S. reacted negatively to Iran's latest response in in the ongoing negotiations and the EU has said that the deal is in danger. Lapid said in the video that he and President Biden agreed the U.S. would not constrain Israel if it wanted to attack Iran. He said, quote, as President Biden and I agreed, Israel has full freedom to act as we see fit to prevent the possibility of Iran becoming a nuclear threat, end quote. Lapid says that Israel's concern is Iran becoming a nuclear armed state. But if that were true, he would favor a revival of the JCPOA as the agreement puts Iran's civilian nuclear program under very strict limits and makes it subject to the most stringent inspections in the world. Israel's biggest complaint about the deal is that it doesn't last forever, but even after the JCPOA, Iran would still be a signatory to the non-proliferation treaty, which Israel refuses to sign due to its secret nuclear weapons program and undeclared nuclear stockpile. Israel has a history of carrying out covert attacks inside Iran, and is suspected of being behind a string of mysterious deaths that occurred inside the country this past spring. So that's always something to keep an eye out as negotiations between the U.S. and Iran are going on. That's when Israel tends to strike inside Iran with these covert attacks. And they've been threatening more overt military action, as Lapid is clearly doing here, standing next to a F-35. But it's not really clear if Israel has the capabilities to go launch airstrikes in Iran. Um, Okay, so the next one here, Biden, President Biden says that he won't label Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism. The White House said on Tuesday that President Biden has decided not to designate Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism, despite, con- despite pressure from Congress to slap the label on Moscow. When asked by reporters on Monday if he would make the designation, Biden simply replied, No. Following up on his comment, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said that labeling, that labeling Russia a state sponsor of terror was not the most effective or strongest path forward. She said the designation could hamper aid deliveries in parts of Ukraine and jeopardize the grain deal between Russia and Ukraine that was brokered by Turkey and the UN. Congress has been pushing hard for the designation and the Senate passed a resolution that called for the administration to take the step. But the resolution was non-binding. Currently, only Cuba, North Korea, Iran, and Syria are labeled by the State Department as sponsors of terror, which in this uh, designation, it expands sanctions against the targeted nation. Cuba was removed from the list by the Obama administration, but was redesignated by the Trump administration in one of its last foreign policy moves. Trump reversed pretty much all of Obama's steps towards normalization with Cuba. Obama's mistake was that he didn't make it official. He didn't fully normalize with Cuba. He just lifted some sanctions. Um, But so it was easy for Trump to reverse all that. Um, Since Russia is already under so many sanctions, this designation calling them a state sponsor of terror, it would have little impact on Moscow. It could potentially um, expand sanctions against countries that do business with Russia. But really uh, what this is about, and this is good that Biden's saying he's not going to do it. I'm surprised. I really thought we were going to see this happen. Um, But it's good that he's not. Because really what this would signal is that U.S.-Russia relations will not be repaired for years and years to come. Even though that's already probably the case. But this would be more symbolic of that. Because if you look at the countries that are designated as state sponsors of terror, which is a ridiculous designation coming from the U.S., You know, which is known for backing all sorts of armed groups around the world. But if you look at the countries that are under this designation, it's Cuba, North Korea, Iran, and Syria—all countries that basically that have no relations with the U.S. Um, So it would put Russia in that category and be very symbolic, and it would be really hard to reverse. These steps are usually pretty tough to to lift, as uh, Obama lifted the Cuba one but that was after decades I think it was the Reagan administration that put Cuba on this list and then that was reversed by Trump but yeah I guess this is this is good news rare good news that we're seeing uh, when it comes to Biden's Russia policy at least he's not taking it taking that next step all right next here Estonia says that Russia's neighbors are close to turning the Baltic Sea into a NATO Sea. Estonia's defense minister told Business Insider that Russia's neighbors could turn the Baltic Sea into a NATO sea if Sweden and Finland join NATO, because that would mean that every nation on the Baltic Sea except for Russia would be a member of the U.S.-led military alliance. Estonia's defense minister said that this could turn the waters into an inner sea of NATO, even though parts of the Baltic Sea are considered international waters. So on the Baltics, there is Sweden, Finland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Germany, and Denmark. And Russia, the city of St. Petersburg is on the Gulf of Finland, which is part of the Baltic Sea. And Russia also has its enclave, Kaliningrad, which is in Eastern Europe. That is sandwiched in between Lithuania and Poland. But it's Russian territory. It's like Alaska um, is to the United States. It's a Russian state, a Russian oblast, as they call them. Um, So, yeah, this official is saying, you know, bring Sweden and Finland in and we can surround Russia in the Baltic Sea. Intentions really rose in the Baltics when Lithuania announced back in June that it would not allow sanctioned goods to travel through its territory to Kaliningrad. The Russian enclave, which I just mentioned, is the Russian enclave on the Baltic Sea. So the eu made lithuania reverse the move but the incident highlighted the danger of russian territory being surrounded by nato members because what happened is russian goods going to kaliningrad a lot of them are shipped there by sea but a lot of them are also shipped by rail then they go through belarus lithuania into kaliningrad so lithuania said they were going to start enforcing eu sanctions which applies to a lot of goods that russia ships there and it, you know, it was really an embargo on Klinigrad and that really spiked tensions. Russia warned it would retaliate. Lithuania said, oh, no, they're not going to retaliate mili- with their military, with military action because we're a member of NATO. So you really see the consequence of giving you know these smaller countries, I think their armed forces are only like 20 something thousand troops in Lithuania. This is what, uh, happens when you give them you know a guarantee to come defend them <laughs> they do things like this um, but the EU made them reverse it and they did it reluctantly uh, Russia said that there's still been some issues with the tra- transport of goods to Kaliningrad but again it just highlights the danger and at the time as NATO expanded eastward into Poland and to the Baltic states you know people were warning that um a western American Uh, foreign policy experts and stuff that were against this NATO expansion were warning that there could be some serious consequences if Kaliningrad was surrounded by NATO territory. So if Sweden and Finland join NATO, Vladimir Putin has said that he doesn't view it as a threat, but he said that he would respond to the expansion of NATO infrastructure in the region. And Russia could potentially beef up its military in in St. Petersburg on the Gulf of Finland or in Kaliningrad. Or also, it's not the Baltic Sea, but Finland shares an over 800-mile border with Russia, which will likely become more militarized if Finland joins, joins NATO. Sweden and Finland's NATO bids are still in the process of being approved by each member, and Turkey has signaled that it could block it could still block their membership if the Nordic nations don't cooperate with Ankara's extradition requests. All right. So speaking of NATO expansion, I just have to take a moment here. We have a sponsor for the show now, and it's a good sponsor that you're all going to be very interested in. Um, it's a book called "How the West Brought War to Ukraine," and it is by Benjamin Ablo. And this is a great short little book. It's you know the best part of it is that you can read it. I read it in an afternoon, and it really just outlines. All the steps that the West took, you know, post Cold War, that led to the situation that we see today in Ukraine, and it just look at the book and see the people that have written good blurbs about it. On the front is Noam Chomsky. On the back, we got Chaz Freeman, uh, Jack Matlock, who was a U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union, Colonel Douglas McGregor, who has been one of the best, you know, voices that we're seeing in in the media uh, against the U.S. policy of arming Ukraine and funding this war on Russia's border. John Maersheimer, another great voice, you know, who's considered the dean of the realist school. And it's just a great little book. And it's something it would be really good, I think, you know, because people listening to this show are probably pretty familiar uh, with how the west did bring war to ukraine but it's really just a great summary of all the facts it could arm you with more facts and it's also a great book to buy for your friends or family that may be skeptical or hopefully you know that they're open to these ideas and if you look at the page at antiwar.com today we have a good review of the book from david gordon of the mises institute if you want to check that out but i'm going to put the link to purchase the book in the show notes if you're listening on the podcast And in the description on YouTube and Odyssey, if you're watching the video, okay. So you know it's good we got a sponsor, but it's something that you know you guys will uh, will like. Definitely, really like the book. Okay, so the next one here, the IAEA issues a report on the Zaporizhia power plant, recommends safety zone. So the International Atomic Energy Agency on Tuesday they issued this report after visiting the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, and it called for what they uh, described as a nuclear safety and security protection zone. So the 52-page report, it stopped short of identifying who has been behind the shelling of the ZNPP as Russia and Ukraine have traded blame for the attacks. The plant and the territory around it have been controlled by Russian forces since March, giving Moscow little reason to attack the area. The report said that, IAEA inspectors observed shelling in the area around the ZNPP and examined damage said to be caused by recent attacks. The report read, quote, the team observed damage at different locations caused by reported events with some of the damage being close to the reactor buildings, end quote. So the IAEA said that they observed a Russian military presence at the plant and they called for an end of shelling on the plant. But Russian officials have reported more attacks. On Tuesday, the Russian Defense Ministry accused Ukraine of firing 20 shells at the town of Hodor, which is the town that the plant is in, and areas around the plant. And they said that three shells landed on the territory of the nuclear power plant. So the fighting around this power plant, of course, it's raised fears of a possible nuclear disaster in Ukraine Ukrainian operators are still running the plant and the IAEA said that the stress caused by the Russian military presence and the shelling makes the situation not sustainable because it just increases the risk of human error with that has pretty grave implications just for what's what's happened here. I mean, I can't imagine working on a nuclear power plant that's uh, where there's a war going on around it, Um, but they did not. You know, there were rumors before the IAEA went to this plant that they were going to name, that they were going to attribute blame for who was attacking the plant, but they didn't. And uh, so Russia, you know, they said that they're not that they should have been able to say that it was Ukraine. But um, still, we just haven't seen them attribute blame yet or the UN. All right. The next one here, Russia says that Western countries are not living up to their end of the grain deal under the deal, the US and its allies. So this is the grain deal, the UN and Turkey brokered grain deal that was signed back in July that unlocked Ukraine's Black Sea ports. And there's another aspect of the deal that hasn't been talked about too much, that Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov mentioned on Tuesday. He got uh, the UN to agree that said Western countries would help facilitate the export of Russian grain and fertilizer, which has been impeded due to Western sanctions. U.S. sanctions on Russia, they technically have exemptions for grain and fertilizer, but the measures discourage shipping firms, insurance companies, and banks from doing business with Russia altogether. And, you know, the U.S. acts surprised that their sanctions uh, are slowing down, grain and fertilizer shipments when there are exemptions. But this happens every time, whenever there's exemptions, because again, it just discourages businesses from doing business altogether. And if a ship is going into a sanctioned port, a, a port where Russian sanctions are are in effect and it's coming from Russia, that means it has to be inspected. It slows the whole thing down. Uh, so a lot of companies just don't want to bother. And Lavrov said, Quote, our Western colleagues are not doing what we were promised by the UN Secretary General. They are not taking decisions to remove the logistics sanctions that prevent the free access of Russian grain and fertilizers to world markets, end quote. So it's not clear exactly what the US and its allies have done since this deal was signed. They said that they would take steps to facilitate the movement of Russian grain and stuff. And the U.S. previously has tried to clarify to international businesses that the sanctions on Russia don't apply to shipments of grain and fertilizer, but it's not clear if the clarifications have worked, have had much impact. Because again, even it's still, they might just not want to deal with the hassle of it. And Russia's envoy to the UN said it's possible that the grain deal won't be extended due to the lack of Russian exports. The agreement was signed in July and is meant to last 120 days, but it can be extended if the parties agree. So this is concerning because this the grain deal was has been, a, when it comes to the Ukraine exports, has been a, a success. Dozens of ships have left Ukraine and now Russia is saying we, they might not extend it. There hasn't been, the US hasn't responded yet to this, to what Lavrov said. Um, so, but their Russia's envoy to the UN when asked if grain or fertilizer has been exported from Russia under the deal, he said, no, nothing has been exported. So it's just not exactly clear what that means. Um, but hopefully, uh, I mean, cause they might just be trying to get the U S to lift sanctions altogether and certain sanctions altogether. So we'll see, uh, what happens with that. The next one, this is just kind of ridiculous. Uh, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, on Tuesday, he rang the opening bell at the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, virtually, he did this. And, you know, this is just another show. He, he seems to pop up everywhere. And uh, he also, while he did it, he appealed for billions of dollars in private investments to rebuild factories and industries in Ukraine that have been destroyed by the war. His government has launched a platform of over 500 projects worth $400 billion for foreign companies and private investors to help rebuild Ukraine's economy. And they want to do this even as the war is dragging on. Um, So, yeah, this is just more uh, Zelensky in the spotlight and uh, getting a chance to really pitch for more money for Ukraine. All right, the next one. Israeli airstrikes shut down Syria's Aleppo airport. So Israel bombed Syria again on Tuesday, and their airstrikes targeted the Aleppo International Airport. For the second time within a week, This is how they've targeted this airport. Syrian state media reported that the strikes put the airport out of commission. Syria's Sana'a news agency said that Israel launched missiles toward the airport from the direction of the Mediterranean Sea and said the strikes did damage to the runway, putting the airport out of service. No casualties were reported in the strikes, but the damage was significant enough that the Syrian Transport Ministry said that air traffic was being diverted to Damascus. Israel previously targeted the Aleppo airport on August 31st. Back in June, Israel bombed the Damascus International Airport, and that was those were major airstrikes causing extensive damage And it put the airport out of commission for two weeks. So we're not—we don't know exactly how extensive the damage at the Aleppo airport was. Usually, the next day after the initial strikes, we see reports of of the damage. And you know, Israel, as we go over a lot, they frequently bomb Syria, but rarely comment on the operations. But when Israeli officials do, they frame the attacks—they frame the airstrikes as attacks on Iran inside the country. But Iran rejected this characterization uh, just this week, calling it absurd because they said that their military presence in Syria is only an advisory one. So, while always framed as operations against Iran, Israeli airstrikes in Syria often kill Syrian troops and members of Shia militias that are from various countries that do receive support from Iran, some of them, you know, to varying degrees. Uh, but also, you know, the strikes can they often kill and injure civilians and damage civilian infrastructure like Tuesday's airstrikes on the Aleppo airport did. I don't know how bombing a runway at, a, at an airport can be framed as an attack on Iran, um, but it seems like Israel's stepping up their airstrikes on, on Syria uh, recently. Um, there's definitely been an uptick in those strikes all right, the last one here. This is from Jason Ditz. Scores are, were killed in Yemen as al-Qaeda attacks southern Yemen separatists. Al-Qaeda forces attack targets in south Yemen's Abiyan province, leading to multiple fights against the Southern Transitional Council. That's the STC. They are a separatist movement that's backed by the UAE. This is really an example of what a mess the war the war in uh, Yemen is. So at least 20 STC fighters were reported killed while they claimed all attackers were slain, which they said were six al-Qaeda fighters. The attacks saw them ambushing checkpoints set up as anti-terror operations. So the STC, they're a separatist movement in the South, and they've actually clashed with the Yemeni government that the Saudis and the UAE, their coalition backs. They've fought before. That's the government... um, The government's really in exile, the the one that the U.S. and the Saudis back, but they do control some territory inside Yemen. Um, But, you know, the UAE backs the STC, and there's also been reporting that shows how the UAE has backed al-Qaeda, has used al-Qaeda fighters in the war against the Houthis. There's a report in AP, if you want to look it up, uh, from 2018, just how the UAE and, and stuff in the coalition cut deals with al-Qaeda fighters and kind of absorb them into some of these militias in the South. And it also cites a U.S. official who said, yeah, we know that there's some al-Qaeda elements in the anti-Houthi forces. There's also a report in CNN of all places in 2019 that's very good. It's called sold to an ally, lost to an enemy. And that details how weapons sold to the UAE and Saudi Arabia end up in the hands of al-Qaeda in Yemen. And the Houthis, So the U.S. intervened, backed the Saudi coalition in March 2015. In January 2015, there was a report from the Wall Street Journal that said the U.S. was sharing intelligence with the Houthis so they could fight al-Qaeda. So the U.S. and the Houthis were on the same side for a short while there against al-Qaeda, and then the U.S. turned around and backed the UAE-Saudi coalition, which is essentially... uh, Essentially, you know, change sides on the war against Al Qaeda because the war against the Houthis is really a war that helps Al Qaeda. Uh, but anyway, that's I just wanted to explain how it is a mess in Yemen and how the US really is uh, helping Al Qaeda there. And again, the, all the things I said are backed up by pretty extensive reporting that you can go look up. Um, but that's it for me for today. Oh, I should mention when it comes to Yemen. Scott Horton, our editorial director, he was uh, he said today, you know, the Senate is back in session, and there is legislation in the House and the Senate to end U.S. involvement in the war in Yemen, and it's important that people get on the phones and and pressure their representatives and their senators to to back those bills to end that war. Um, you could call one eight three three Stop War, and they will connect you to your senator or representative. If you go on the website. Right now, just the Senate's back in session. I think the House is back in session next week. But if you go to one eight three three 833 stop it runs you through it there. But anyway, that's the show for today. Contact us at news at antiwar.com. Support the show by donating, antiwar.com slash donate. You could also support the show by buying, purchasing merch. The link is in the description. And now you could also support the show by buying our sponsor's book, How the West Brought the War to Ukraine. Um, But that's it for today. I'll be back tomorrow with some more news. Thank you.